It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 250. It's a nice round number. Yep. Of the Professional Book Nerds podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. Hey. Remember 25 episodes ago when I was like, we're at 225. That's one-fourth of 1,000. You did. Now it's one-fourth of Now 1, it's one-fourth. Um, yeah. Math finally caught up. Hey, did you watch any Castle Rock last night after I talked about it last time? I unfortunately did not. I was so... We had a team activity um, after... We did. We did have a team activity. And so by the time I got home, I was tired. Yeah. It was like super go-karting. It was intense go-karting. Yeah. I'm so glad I did not go-kart. Yeah, me too. I, I was thinking about doing it, and then I saw the first round of them go, and I was like... Mm. No, it was intense. Yeah. It looked fun, though. It did look fun. Yeah. But... Yeah, we... Yeah. It was no. a lot. We watched... Uh, my wife and I watched the first episode. Oh, my... Oh, it's... Is so, it good? Yeah. All right. Oh, it's so moody and mysterious and wonder... I'm so excited to continue it. Um. Anyway, that's not what this is about. Guys, I'm so excited for this episode. Uh, I got to sit down at Book Expo America with friend of the show, Anne Leckie. Yep. And N.K. Jemison, who, it, man, what a human being. Like, these two are basically, like, the defining voices of science fiction. Like, I don't even want to say, like, female science fiction. Just, like, science fiction. Correct. Period. These yeah. two are, like, they're it. They're the people. And um, what's really cool about this conversation is because Anne was on the show previously with you, which she remembered and said hello. Oh, good. Um, I didn't want to just talk about her, like her books, sure, and because N.K. Jemison has written so many books. It was like I don't want to just talk about one book or two books with one of them, you know, and try to figure out. So instead, we talked, we discussed um, diversity in science fiction That's and awesome. fantasy, and um, they're both very like vocal about how sometimes terrible can be, terrible people can be on like social media and interacting with each other and it, it was just an, a phenomenal conversation um for the first like 25 to 30 minutes of it it's just Anne and i because nk was stuck in new york traffic oh no um so then there's like a pause in the middle and i'll do my best to edit it together but i will definitely <laughs> mess up um and then nk joins us and uh and she goes by nora by the way so that's i call her nora during i, I asked her I'm like, can i call you nora and she's like that's what my name is so yeah that's fine um, but the end of it is all three of us together. But just even that small, like small amount of time, it was it was one of those things where there are two people who are so well known in the book world. Like while we were sitting talking, there would be people walking by that would like do double takes to mm-hmm. like, oh my god, is that who I think it is? Yep. So it was such an awesome conversation. And they both said that they would come back, which is like that's yeah which is the most important part that is the most important part i also told them that i would listen to them do a podcast by themselves like if i just remove me from it i could see that as being a really good one okay if anything i was in the way like i would ask them a question then rare for me i would just shut up and (laughs) let them talk uh so i'm super excited for you guys to hear this if people have feedback where can they find us 
Easiest place to go is our website, professionalbooknerds.com. From there, you can visit us on our social media accounts, Twitter and Instagram, at ProBookNerds. <laughs> and um, you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Yeah, you can. Uh, be sure to join that Viber community because we're going to start asking people for questions in advance for some pretty awesome author interviews that we have coming up. And if you don't join, you can't know in advance who we're going to talk to. So it's like early access or whatever. Yeah. Um, do you have other, other things you think people should know about? I think that's everything. Probably isn't. I'm sure we're forgetting stuff. Oh, whatever. no. Um, Big Library Read voting is going on. Ah, on point, Joe. Good job. Okay. Go to biglibraryread.com and click on the survey and you can tell us what you want the next Big Library Read to be. Every time we do a Big Library Read, no matter how popular or unknown the title is, people go on the discussion boards like, how did this title get picked? It got picked because readers went in and they voted. So go to biglibraryread.com and vote for your choice. Voting is open all week. Um, I don't want to say that don't I say... have favorites, but there's a few people that I would be yes. very excited if they yeah. if they were selected. So uh, It's Juvenile and YA for this next one, and it will be in October. Um, and we have a lot of exciting things planned for it. So go check it out, biglibrary.com. Really good call on your part. So. And guys, if you get the Overdrive emails every single week, you would have seen that already. And if you're not, go to overdrive.com, and you can sign up for our email newsletters. Look at us representing the brand. Uh, okay. Is that everything? I think that's everything. Cool. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this wonderful conversation with Ann Leckie and N.K. Jemison on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Adam again. I am still hanging out at Book Expo America, and I am very honored to be sitting next to Ann Leckie. And in a little bit, we'll be joined by N.K. Jemison, who is dealing with New York traffic, which is a thing that happens. Uh, so we're going to dive into a whole bunch of fun stuff. For people who might not be aware, Ann Leckie is returning to our show. She was with Jill once, and they talked about her most recent novel, Provin- Providence. I always want to say Providence yeah. because of the city and apologize which by the way the book is wonderful oh thank you um and because we discussed that a little bit with you we're gonna do some general science fiction fantasy world building all sorts of different questions so first off thank you so much for joining us again we appreciate it oh thank you for having me yeah and then i guess just kind of my first my first question for you as someone who i kind of see as one of the voices of science fiction i don't mean to shower you with praise right in front of you but for you, why science fiction, both as a writer and as a reader? Like, what draws you to this particular I genre? have to admit that I'm not 100% sure. Uh-huh. I've been a science fiction reader since I was very young, mm-hmm. and so it appealed to me very early. Uh, and I'm not sure why. Uh, but I know that having grown up reading science fiction... Uh, there's something about being able to have a world that's very different from our own mm-hmm. uh, that adds something extra yeah. to a story, right? It lets you kind of step outside things and look mm-hmm. at things from different angles. And, uh, you know, blowing up planets, you can't beat that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and something that I really like about science fiction is while it does enable you to step out into a completely different world, like, you know, whether it's a space opera or what you know somewhere in the distant future i think it becomes almost like a safer space to touch on societal issues that if you wrote a 
grounded I, is, you know, the word every other one else would say, but like, oh, if you wrote a story in our world and it was all about issues with like socioeconomic differences or things like that, it becomes this heavy book that people want to say, like, well, it has something to say. But you can have something to say in science fiction. And I think it's almost like a safer way to do it. You know? and I think in some ways it's a more effective way to do it. The tools that science fiction gives you let you do that more effectively. There are things that are difficult to talk about. Uh, it's difficult to talk about gender in any particular... I mean, you can do it, and yeah. there are nonfiction writers who have written some really brilliant stuff. Uh, but we have such automatic reactions because we have a particular particular cultural framework and right. the language isn't there to talk about certain things. But if you say, oh, I'm going to make this society where mm-hmm. there are ten genders and it's this, that opens up a way of talking about things. Yeah. It makes it easier to talk about some things. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you, if you take a set of characters who are different genders, but you put them in a world where it's like, that is so irrelevant that it doesn't even matter, I, I think you can immediately set in someone's mind like look how unimportant this is to the story it's irrelevant if our main person our protagonist or antagonist is male female etc you can just get to the root of the story you want to tell yeah I, I, one of the things I thought was interesting because that was kind of what I was doing with the trilogy Correct. one of the things I was doing yeah. uh, and it was just sort of incidental but the thing when I was writing it that I found most interesting was I wasn't trying to say look how important gender is to you that you don't even realize how important it is right uh, but that was what that did, was people went, oh my gosh, it never occurred to me that I was making yeah. these assumptions, right? Yeah. That wasn't what I was trying to do, but it was a side effect of what I was doing, and I was like, I like that. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that science fiction can do very effectively, that can be very difficult to do yeah. with quote-unquote mainstream realistic fiction. Right, and do you think, I mean, do you think we're, for science fiction, much like everything else, do you think that's been a a growing situation like was the, were you able to find books that were similar to this when you were first getting started or to a certain extent mm-hmm. uh, I grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and the 70s of course was jam packed with feminist science fiction uh, some of the biggest best writers of the 70s were women writing very explicitly feminist science fiction uh, and that was a lot of what I found at the library, mm-hmm. right? When I was old enough to go to the library by myself and spend my Saturdays there. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, that was a very different take on things than maybe uh, feminist science fiction would be now. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that started me thinking about some of those issues, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, I mean, Things aren't ever going to be the same decade to decade, yeah. but what goes on the previous decades does make a foundation for what happens Absolutely. later. Yeah. Do you remember some of those books, kind of in particular? Oh, the one, uh, the one that I do remember. A lot of them I don't remember because I was just randomly pulling books off the shelf. Yeah. The one that I do remember was uh, Susie McKee Charnas. Uh, it was one of the trilogy. It wasn't the first one of her Holdfast trilogy, mm-hmm. uh, and I was un- I was way too young actually to pick it up off the shelf. <laughs> I wasn't even supposed to be in the grown-up side of the library. Yeah. And, uh, and I pulled this book off the shelf, and it was about uh, girls and horses. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have hit the jackpot, <laughs> 12-year-old me, 12-year-old Catholic schoolgirl, very sheltered me, uh-huh. except uh, that particular book is about a society of all women, they're clones, mm-hmm. and they reproduce parthenogenetically, except they trigger a pregnancy by having sex with their horses. Of course they do. 
That's right. Well, and well, I did. I did not know that. Of uh-huh. course, when I was twelve-year-old Catholic school girl, right. saw, I was like, I have hit the jackpot. Yeah. Science fiction with girls and horses. Right. But can I? You know. Well, I can't imagine they put that on the jacket either. Like on the. No. Well, then if they did, it was in like a. a sort of a gentle euphemistic kind uh-huh. of way that I didn't understand at that age. Yeah. As an adult, I would probably go back and go, oh, obviously that's yeah. what's going on, right? Yeah. yeah. So something that I think is very unique to fantasy and science fiction is the fact that you're not just building a story and building a characters, but you're also building worlds. So can you kind of take us through, from your aspect, which one of those comes first for you? Like when you're just kind of noodling on an idea, is it oh, it would be fun if a society worked this way, or, oh, here is a interesting story I can tell. Let's figure out. It's kind of a combination of the two, mm-hmm. um, because in a lot of ways, we are who we are because of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to put, for instance, a character together if you don't know where that character sure. is living. And it's difficult to figure out where a story is going to go if you don't know who the person is and what the world is. And so often I'll just start with like little bits and fragments Uh uh, and then try and mix and match them together and then I'll start adding more things on. So I know that a lot of authors will say the characters that they write at the beginning of the book, even if they're a planner as opposed to a pantser, the characters that they start writing those first few chapters are not the characters that they end up with and so they'll go back and they'll obviously in the editing process you clean up a lot of it does that happen in world building too because i, I oh, mean yeah. especially with the fact that your stories are you know it's a trilogy it's you can't just tell one so how do you take that balance of like okay if i i just feel like it's such a accelerated version of writing it was like all right well my characters have changed and so have the world around them and so now i did tweak the characters like I guess, what is that process like for you? It's it's kind of, it gets weirder as uh, more things get published in the same, like for instance, the trilogy, mm-hmm. when I was working on the first book, everything was up in the air. I could yeah. change things as much as I wanted to fit whatever right. I was going to do. Uh, but when the second book came out, I was writing the second book, the first book was already out. Yeah. So I couldn't just go back and edit that, <laughs> really right? I was stuck with it. Um, and so I was, you know, like having all post-it notes on the wall in my office, you know, who's where and who's doing what and what exactly happened here. And um, so, so that can be kind of, it, it also though, it adds a kind of security because there are things I don't have to make up, right? Uh, yeah, sorry, we're doing an interview though, so, but you can grab some candy, yeah. Um, I'm just imagining a, like you doing a panel and talking about like the third book and having someone raise your hand and be like actually in ancillary justice uh, like has that ever happened with somebody- not yet but i'm sure i'm sure it will i actually uh, i'm a big fan of cj cherry uh-huh. uh and particularly her at this point i think it's like 18 volumes or yeah. something uh foreigner uh, it's a huge long series right. uh, and this used to be a thing I didn't understand how it could happen uh, at a certain point in the middle of the books uh-huh. uh, the main character Bren has been away for a long time and comes back and he's like oh I don't have any place to live because I don't have an apartment and we're like a lot of the fans yeah. when I say we the uh-huh. fans I hung out with were like he has an apartment in the Boo David. He has for years. What are you even talking about? Well, it had been so long <laughs> that she forgot yeah. that. And I'm like, how can you forget that? Yeah. Because I knew every detail of these books. And now I totally understand how that happened. 100% yeah. understand how that happened. I just feel... <laughs> I took a sip of coffee while you were saying that and I almost like spit my coffee. <laughs> it's so funny to me. Oh, especially I, there's 
a lot of science fiction novels, like um, like the Expanse series. Yes. It's written by multiple people. There's two of them that are writing it together. I don't even know how that, and it's so huge, mm-hmm. right? That must be amazing. I and I, I had a conversation with them about that, and they acted like it was no big deal. They're like, well, one of us sort of chapter, and the other one will write the, the next, and we'll kind of go back and forth, and then we'll tell like, one of us uses one voice, and the other one uses the other. And I'm just sitting here like, but oh, you've written, you've built a literal universe. How are you not ever... I bet they've got like a... I actually, by the time I started my second book, and I don't even have as big of a project as The Expanse, uh-huh. right? Uh, I had to make, put together my own little wiki. Mm-hmm. And I bet they've got like a little wiki going that yeah. they... I feel like at this point you could probably ask fans to do that for you too. Just be like, hey, listen, and lucky here, got a quick favor for you guys. Uh, so I, I guess... Now, like nowadays, what are some of the science fiction novels that you enjoy? Um, oh, there have been so many great things coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've read River Solomon's Unkindness of Ghosts. I have not. Which is freaking amazing. Yeah. It's so fabulous. Uh-huh. Um, and they're up for a Campbell, not a Hugo, <laughs> Campbell Best New Writer. Uh, but they're nominated with good reason on the strength of that book. I highly recommend it. Um, also, uh, I love, it's on the cover of the book, uh, Martha Wells' Murderbot novellas. Yeah. They are so much fun. Uh, and as soon as I read the first one, I said, I know my readers are going to love this. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, many of my readers do love uh-huh. it. Um, also, and this one won't be out till next year, actually, Arkady Martin's uh, A Memory Called Empire. Mm-hmm. I think my readers will really like yeah. it. <laughs> I really loved it a lot. It was fabulous. Uh, Sam Miller's Blackfish City. Uh-huh. That one I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah that one's really good. Yeah. yeah, there's just there's lots of really good stuff. There's so many, and it always it never ceases to amaze me the amount of different worlds that can be created. Like there's just it, it literally is like the whole like this infinite parallel universe kind of thing. Like that is how I feel when it comes to science fiction. It's like a space opera is not a space opera is is a space opera like it, there's so many well that's you know I there. think people who don't read science fiction and fantasy think of it all as being very cookie cutter uh-huh. and there certainly is some and not that there's anything wrong with that because sometimes what you want is just to blow up some planets of course in your free time yeah. right who doesn't um, but science fiction and fantasy both are so varied they contain so many different kinds of things and there's so much possibility there and so many writers are just getting everything they can out of it it's really incredible you don't need to name names but are there like tropes or situations that come up very frequently and novels that kind of irritate you so the one that i'll I'll have to restrain myself from ranting uh one of the tropes i really really dislike personally is the robot who wants to be human yes oh do i dislike the robot who wants Uh to be human i'm also not a big fan of the robot uprising Mm -hmm. killing all humans story like that happens so often and i feel like i don't i get why because people are trying to capitalize on the fact that we have a fear of that in society but i want it feels like kind of a chicken or the egg situation really where we as a people using the royal we were we all worried about that and so they started writing stories about it or did people start writing stories so about it? So I'll tell you my theory, yes. which is mine uh-huh. and totally unsupported by any actual academic, you know, but it's my theory. <laughs> um, actually, the first story that used the word robot uh-huh. was Carl Chapek's R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots. Uh-huh. 
And that was not a story about mechanical people. That was a story about artificially produced people. It was a story about a slave uprising. Yeah. And in fact, it's the, it's the very first robot story, and it's a robot uprising story, uh -huh. and they kill all the humans in the world. Of course they do. Um, and the more I thought about that, and the more I thought about because I've always been drawn to like the artificial intelligence and android characters, uh -huh. uh, and I think, why? What is appealing about them? Uh, but it's, it's difficult for me now to look at those and not see them as stories about oppressed populations. Uh -huh. So Rossum's Universal Robots is about the way people treat people as disposable just for labor, right. and what the results of that will be. Um, the story about the stories about robot uprisings are about oppressed people being given an inch, actually being stronger. Yeah. They're all a, they're an existential threat to us, and I think those are the same narratives that when we talk about, say, black people, mm -hmm. gets them shot. Yeah. Right. Be oh, because they're dangerous, because they're a threat. Absolutely. Be you know, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. And I think you touched on something really great there, and it's that whereas I mentioned earlier creating these worlds that it gives you the ability to talk about societal issues from a positive standpoint and and make change for the world. I think it also lends itself to people who might have underlying you know, racial issues or biases and it enables them to convey those through the characters. Oh yeah, well, and sometimes people don't realize they're doing it, right? right? Um, I feel like uh, narrative is a way that people think. I think that's why stories are so powerful, is that we respond to the world based on the narratives that we have in our head. Uh, and so when you're consuming these narratives over and over again, you come into a situation and you respond to it based on the narratives that you've got. Uh, and so continuing to push that narrative without questioning it, uh, I think has the potential for doing real damage. Uh, but at the same time, science fiction has the possibility of undermining or questioning that narrative or counteracting it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, I, yeah I just, I guess I, I literally didn't even really think about it until you were playing it out. Like, okay, well, you can very easily use robotism in stories to represent African-Americans. or you know, And you people can, have. And people <laughs> very much have. Or you can use, I, I know that a lot of times I, my father's side of our family is Jewish, and there's a lot of novels out there that they'll use. They'll take some kind of like they'll turn an animal, and like it's a representation of Jewish people. And you're like, oh, oh, so the humans are humans, yeah, and exactly. The animals are Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. Hold, hold on, hold the phone. That, that's not yeah, great. yeah. I'm from a so black people are robots, and white people are humans. Just humans, and uh, yeah. What? And apparently, Jewish people are I don't know mice. It's just like it's always it's like. Like Fievel, which I love the movie Fievel, but it's still, it's a bunch of Jewish mice trying to escape. And not the same thing, but it's just like, okay, like probably yeah, Well, if everybody's mice. Like, yeah, if, if it's a parable about people and all the people are mice, that's one thing. Yeah. But if it's, and the Jewish people are mice, yeah. which happen, you know, and the elves are black people. Yeah. Like, what? No. No, they're not. And that's actually one of the reasons I don't like the robot that wants to be human. Uh -huh. Because the safe oppressed person mm -hmm. is the one who knows they're imperfect yeah. and wishes they were like... The oppressor, right? So, okay, so are there certain things that you know you kind of mentioned enjoying the robot uprising thing? Like, are there certain things that you know if you see it? Like, all right, yeah, I mean, like, I'll be honest, and it's a product of me growing up as a Harry Potter child. Like, if I see a book about a school that is kind of teaching magic, like, there's um, Taryn Mathara wrote this young adult fantasy series called The Summoners, and it's all about these kids have these like magical demons it's like a mix of harry potter 
and the Golden Compass. <laughs> like they have their own little demons and they learn how to do magic. And I just literally, it happened that the stories were incredible, but I was like, this could be the worst writing and I know and I I'm love in. That. So yeah. are there things like that where you're like, yes, absolutely. A good artificial intelligent character? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm in for that, right? Just 100%. Um, almost anything widescreen mm-hmm. and large scale, almost anything uh, anthropological uh-huh. or dealing with language. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of the things I love about uh, the Foreigner books mm-hmm. is they're very much the main character is a translator. Yeah. That's what he does, and that's this whole big long series, yeah. right? Um, those are all, uh, and honestly, I like some gunfights and sword fights yeah, too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm down for that. Yeah, I, I feel like if there's a a trope of like there be dragons I'm like well there be Adam as well I'm going to absolutely yeah visit. oh you and my daughter my daughter's there for dragons yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is about them it, it is it's something where it's like I, I love Lord of the Rings and it's a lot of things that we were actually having a conversation about this earlier with an author like there's a lot of things in Lord of the Rings that you don't really realize like sexism like there's basically like women do next to nothing in that entire series. I think he meant really well, but that's a thing that happens. Yeah. That, yeah. But I will say, for whatever reason, with like the Hobbit and Smog, I'm like, yep, there's a dragon. I'm in. And whatever the reason is, I, I'm super on board for that. Um, what do you find more difficult, creating a new universe and starting a story from scratch, or knowing when you want to finish up a final book and then it's kind of closing up on oh, what you've created. I haven't finished up a final book yet. So As I was I'm asking, sure. I was I do you plan to stay in that world? Or are you are there other things that you're kinda like noodling on that would be a different I don't have universe? any new universe well, depending on how, what you consider new. Uh, when I was selling short fiction yes. when I was selling mostly short fiction uh, before I'd sold the novels, I actually sold way more fantasy than mm-hmm. science fiction. Uh, so people who read my short fiction knew me as a fantasy writer yeah. and were surprised about my science fiction. Uh, and I actually had, for almost all of my stories, had a very consistent fantasy universe that they're all set in. Uh, and so the novel that's coming out next year is going to be set in that universe. It's a fantasy. Um, I don't have any plans to close that out because I find having a world I can go back to yeah. is very useful, right? Uh, that was one of the reasons I kept writing the short fiction in that same universe was I'd get an idea and I think, oh, I've already got a framework built, right? And so I do like, I like being able to build stuff fresh. So it's always in a different part, just like Provenance is in the same universe as the ancillary books, but a very different part so I could build everything new. Yeah. But I had sort of a foundation to start with and I like having that security. Mm-hmm. That, that um, Lee Bardugo told me the same thing about her book, her Grishaverse universe, and then she, she wrote... Six of Crows, and she's like, yeah, it was in the universe, but it was a completely different story, and I'm like, that's just such a smart way of doing things, because then you have that reliable space. Are you allowed to talk about the fantasy book that you're... Um, I can tell you the title. Okay. And I can tell you that you can find the... Co- there was a cover reveal mm-hmm. recently. It's not out until February. Okay. Uh, it's called The Raven Tower, uh-huh. uh, and it is set in the same universe as my short fantasy fiction, yeah. for folks who are familiar with that, or who want to go to my website and read some of my mm-hmm. fantasy fiction. Um... And more than that, yeah, it might be too early to That's say much fair. about it. That's yeah. fair. And we don't have a publicist with us today, so I always know I was trying. Oh, I will say, and uh, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but uh, Provenance is coming out in paperback this nice. July, and in the back of the paperback is going to be the opening to the fantasy novel. That is fantastic. So if folks want to read, mm-hmm. they can read the first, yeah. you know. Okay, so 
I stole someone else's thing, and I'll tell it to you after, but just because it's fun, I hate when science fiction and fantasy like get lumped together. Not like I love that people can write both of them. That's incredible to me, and I love reading both of them. But when people will say like, "What genre do you like? Science fiction and fantasy? Which one? <laughs> Please tell me which one." So how do you? I, I have a fun way to describe the difference. From John Scalzi told me it. I will not take credit for it. But how do you? If you, how do you describe Honestly, the difference between the two? If uh, the if the cool speculative things happen through aliens or switches or uh-huh. you know something techno babble, then it's science fiction. If it happens through we don't know, then it's fantasy. Because oh. I honestly see this is I know it's, it's going to start a huge fight. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not sure there's a huge fundamental difference. Uh-huh. I think there's a, a it's a continuum. Let me sure. put it this way: there's some science fiction that's really obviously not fantasy, mm-hmm. like. The Martian, mm-hmm. even though there's never going to have been a storm like that on the Martian, and even though potatoes don't really grow like that, right? That he worked very hard to get, like that's very near future. Uh-huh. He tried to science the shit out of it as much as he could, right. right? And then you've got your stuff that's completely like, you know, mystical and uh-huh. doesn't even really make logical sense on yeah. the other end of the continuum. But there's a place in the middle. Where they kind of bleed into each other, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where you're like, eh, if it's a spaceship. Yeah, I I feel like there, and I was out there where I feel like that middle section is like alchemy. Like the actual idea of alchemy, I feel like, is the middle where some people can justify, like, oh, alchemy is obviously not real. You can't just make gold, so it's magic and it's fantasy. But other people be like, well, Except it's technically. Alchemy at the time was science. Exactly. And it, it became chemistry, yeah. right? But. But alchemy is totally ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was laughing because John Skull's basically said the same thing. He's like, if a thing happens and the description is some elaborate, multi-paragraph situation that ends up with some sort of speculative science in it, it's science fiction. If they describe the thing that happened by saying it's magic. Then it's fantasy. Then it's fantasy. Yeah. I was like, that's very strange. Well, I mean, well, Clark's Law, right? Mm-hmm. Sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, yeah. which means that sufficiently comprehensible magic uh-huh. is indistinguishable from technology. If yeah. you're in a world where magic works, mm-hmm. then the things you do to exploit that are the, exactly the same things that we do to exploit yeah. the characteristics of the universe to produce technology. It becomes technology. So it's not magic anymore. So the difference becomes, you know, so it's really a question of mood or, or you know, mode more yeah. than, and then individual, because you can treat fantasy very much like science fiction, mm-hmm. and you can treat science fiction very much like fantasy. Yeah. That's a really good way. That's a really good point. That's a very good way of thinking of it. Okay, if you could take anyone else's world to write a story in, who would oh, you, who I would you pick? Maybe Jack Vance uh-huh. or maybe CJ Chair. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was gonna laugh if you said N.K. Jemison, who oh. <laughs> wouldn't be here. Although that was I reading her books, I'm just like I couldn't. They're amazing. I yeah. wouldn't. I would not presume, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, something she does, and we can get to that when she gets here. But she plays with a lot of timelines while also being in a different world, and I think that is such a level of skill oh, yeah. of writing because you could just as easily say well these are different worlds in this universe that I built but she somehow finds a way to make to them all fit together all fit together yeah it's absolutely incredible um, something that I wanted to get to with both of you but I'll just ask you now before she gets here so do you think we're in a better place now from a diversity standpoint in science fiction 
than we were, say, 10 years ago? Or do you think there's still a long way to go? Yes. There's definitely still a way long way to go. There are lots of still systemic things Mm -hmm. that are, I think, it's good in that people are consciously trying to address issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's also been good that, for instance, Nora is on the scene and as prominent as she does, maybe not quite as prominent as she deserves to be, as prominent as she deserves to be, so that the people who in the past would say, oh, well, you know, that won't appeal to readers as though readers is every reader, but they mean white readers, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't say that. Um, At the same time, there are still systemic issues. There are still agents and editors who, you know, say, oh, that didn't grab me. I couldn't sympathize with the character. They're not trying to be racist. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to be sexist. They're not trying to be, you know, uh, but those things are still in place. Uh Uh, So... I kind of feel like we've taken a few steps forward, mm-hmm. and that's awesome, and I don't want to downplay that necessarily, but there's also still, yeah. there's a long way to go. What are your thoughts on writing as a white female writer? What are your thoughts on writing diverse characters, like, say, as a white male, if I wanted to write an African-American LGBTQ character? Of like, like, it's such a touchy subject because I think you want to get more diverse characters in your stories. But also, I'm not... I personally, like, if I was writing those stories, I wouldn't be writing it for me. Even if I did all the research in the world and spoke to all of my diverse friends, I'm still not coming at it. Like Exactly. Could. And I think uh, another piece, of the, a related piece of that puzzle is that, uh, for instance, uh, if I were to write a story that was about gay guys, mm-hmm. uh, it would be the way a heterosexual cis woman looks at gay guys, right. which would not be the same thing as the way it's a gay guy would see themselves. Exactly. And But that might be a more palatable, it's, it's the more conventional way of seeing, and so it's going to ring more true to an editor, right? And so that's a problem when you have, when the narratives, you say, oh, I'm writing about diverse people, all yeah. kinds of different people, but somehow it's, the authors are all white, straight, cis, right? Yeah. That's an issue. Yeah. Um, I was talking to somebody uh, who, it, it's a very, it's a complicated issue, uh, who said to me, a person who was trans, who said, you know, I like when cis writers put trans characters and write about trans characters, but what I don't like uh-huh. is uh, when they try to write about being trans. Yeah. And I said, you know, that's a really helpful distinction. I said, I can totally understand that because I can't write about being trans, right. but I can certainly make an effort to include trans characters. Yes. Um, but it's a, it's a complicated issue. Another complicated part of it, of course, is uh, particularly with queer authors and trans authors, mm-hmm. folks might not be out. Yeah. And so when you're reading and you say, well, how can you write this book about being trans and you're a cis? Right. How can you write this book about being mentally ill, but you're not mentally ill? It's like, well, you shouldn't have to go out and put all those things on display. But I also don't want, I know there are folks who are like, well, ha, 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 see, I'm actually a minority just Mm -hmm. to, and I'm not trying to say that, but it it can be a really fraught and complicated issue. And so I'm trying to come to a place where I view like stories about women, which is one of my, like, I see a guy write about being a woman and Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. But (laughs) Maybe this person I think is a guy is actually not a dude, yeah, right? Absolutely. And I, I'm trying to get myself to come at that a little more charitably, right? Yeah. But I still think it's an issue. It absolutely. is an issue. Well, this is an awesome place to put a pin in because I literally see Anora yeah. right next to us. So we're going to pause this for a moment and come right back and take a quick break. Mm-hmm. 
Okay guys, we're back again, and Lecky is still with me, but super excited. We have another person with us now, and Kay Jamison, who goes by Nora, so we're gonna call yeah. you Nora from here on out. But Hi, where Mary. we last left out, first off, thank you for joining us today. Sure. You had to fight all the traffic in the world, so I appreciate it. Yeah, apparently so, but thank you, and thank you for putting up with me being horribly late. So, Oh no, okay. we just got to just kind of wax and have a good conversation with Emily. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even need you. It was ah, fine. Whatever. I know that's uh-huh. not true. Yeah. Though. So Anne and I were just kind of discussing the idea of writing characters who look differently than you, because even now, we're I think we're doing better from a diverse author and diverse mm-hmm. book standpoint. There's still a long way to go, mm-hmm. and the majority of people still look like me—a white, straight male, mm-hmm. Manila folder of a human being, like mm-hmm. these most rings. And a person like me, what are your thoughts on someone trying to write a diverse character? Do you think it's a good thing that people want to put diversity in their books, even mm-hmm. if they aren't that type of person? Or if they want to, is there a proper way to go about it to try to have you know, readers or conversations they have ahead of time? Or you, as an African-American female author, do you kind of see it as, wait, that's a story someone who looks like me should be telling? Well, I mean, it depends on what the story is, for one thing. But, you know, because it's not a simple matter of, like, brown people are not, marginalized people are not. Right. Um, you know, but the, the at the end of the day, um, it's a matter of good writing to make the world look like it is, or to make humanity look like it is. You know, even if you're not writing about, you know, modern-day New York City, modern-day America, whatever, um, the human species... Well, um, the human species is is wildly diverse. We've got all kinds of genders, all kinds of races, and so forth. And that is what should be depicted if you're depicting people yeah. um, who are, you know, human or, or even other cultures, other species, mm-hmm. should have human-like complexity because that's the species we know and we are going to compare. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it's just a matter of good writing. And, yeah. and there's a tendency, especially in science fiction and fantasy, to to obsess over getting like the science right but we don't bother to get the people right and that's just problematic yeah um but that's improving it's improving we're seeing lots of really good stuff um that's doing better um in terms of writing stuff that is not in line with your own experiences your own background and so forth um you know i i'm very much in agreement with you Anne, about how this is there are certain stories that belong to the the people who live them, um, and you can't write that story. You know, in, in, in a lot of cases, um, there's a tendency for people who don't live that identity to kind of want to fly in and, and exploit it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's cool to them, it's interesting to them, it's not a lived experience to them, it's fetishized by them, it's it's exotified and uh-huh. commodified by them, and and that's not a thing that. That's not good writing. Yeah. Um, there are some stories that we need to back the hell off and not say, mm-hmm. um, and not you know not tell. But I mean, at the same time, um, you know, the it's entirely possible for you to include those people's stories in your own without uh, centering it on whatever the the, the identity is. Yeah. Um, you know, because people exist, and people who happen to be trans happen to you know want to try and take over the world or yeah. you know whatever. Um, yeah. Or happen to want to save the world, yeah. um, and there's no reason why that has to be about their transness. They're just being trans and megalomaniacal. And there's something absolutely <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
everybody gets to be a megalomaniac. Yeah, my just, stuff. You can be a monster no matter what. Exactly, exactly. And there's something when when you say, oh, we have lots of of diverse quote unquote stories, and they're all about black people and trans people and queer people, yeah. and they're all written by white straight cis yeah. people. Then you're yeah. like, well, that's yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's the whole point of the own voices. Portion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is that you know, if there is there is a lot of debate about whether uh, writers should include characters outside of their own outside of their yeah. own identities. I've heard those debates. Um, a lot of the the nuance gets stripped out of those debates, though, by by blaring clickbaity headlines that are like white people can't write people of color yeah. or whatever. And that's not that's not right. what anybody's ever been saying. Um, what people are saying is do it right. Um, yeah, I, and there is a right way to do it. Yes. Yeah, so that's such a good point. Um, we have a really good friend who comes on the show very, mm. fairly frequently. Um, Reek Nikomp, Nikomp, I was saying the last name. Mm. She wrote This Is Where It Ends. It's a book about a school shooting. It's a YA book. Mm. And she is a Dutch author who is, uh, she grew up disabled and she also identifies as queer, not binary. And she always says, she's like, my sexuality does not define me. Yeah. Therefore, when you write, if yeah. you want to write me into a book, that shouldn't be the de- defining character. If you want to have someone who happens to be gay or non-binary or not mm-hmm. or trans, whatever it is, like, sure, if that's the character trait, mm-hmm. fine. But don't have that be the, a trope and a stereotype of mm-hmm. what they are. And I think that's a different. Well, I mean, okay. There are times when when my identity as a black woman or something else, some some other aspect of my life, does define who I am. It defines how other people react to me. It defines how I how I protect myself when I'm going about my life. Um, but that is those stories need to be told too. I'm not saying that those should not be told. I'm just saying that they need to be told by people who are who are doing more than getting their research from from a newspaper article. Yeah. Um, you know, who know what it feels like, who know exactly what the the different little stages and steps are of of going about life as that person. Yeah. Um, and there's value in those stories. Um, but those stories do need to be told um, truthfully. Something that I know you're very aware of, and you can both touch on this, but social media is a gift and a curse. Mm-hmm. And I jokingly said the other day on Twitter, I was like, my Twitter timeline's a mixed bag, because on one side mm-hmm. it's just rampant, foul racism, mm-hmm. but on the other side I get to see strangers' dogs. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> okay. well, let's see, is it good or is it bad? But I know that, you know, I love your kind of policy on Twitter where you're just like, I will block you if, even if you're just irritating me. It doesn't even have to be that you're outright. Well, no, I but, only block them if they're being overtly abusive. Right. So I mute them if they're boring. I'm, the I'm the one who blocks them if they irritate me. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. So, All right. <laughs> so, do you, but do you think that social media, Twitter, and everywhere else, Despite all of its negative, I know there's a lot of, sometimes it can be a vocal minority that wants to yell behind an egg avatar, avatar, but Mm. do you think it's done well to bring people together and help discover Mm. new voices and new communities that they might not know existed so they're not alone, or or do you think it is more this kind of unfortunate free Mm. space for people to yell about? I've been talking for a bit. (laughs) <laughs> but I've been talking and talking, so yeah, you know, okay. I feel like I'm talking I, too much. I kind of right. feel like it's both things. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of fabulous communities that have formed mm. or maybe become more visible. I haven't seen them until right, I can see them right, talking right. on Twitter. Uh, every now and then, I'm, oh, Twitter activism is really stupid. You know, it mm. doesn't do anything. And then I'm mm. like, but I've seen all these people doing this stuff, and I've seen the effects of it. So yeah. it's been, you know, or oh, the internet is not a real community. It's all surface. Ah, mm. I don't know. But at the same time, the potential for the egg avatars and for people getting head up about something that maybe they haven't researched all the way through, which I have been guilty of, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to, uh, it because it's super easy to do, right? Yeah. When you're so, I think it's both things. I wouldn't want to see Twitter go away. Mm-hmm. I just wish they would kick off the Nazis. Yeah, that would be really helpful. Yeah. I would appreciate that. That would yeah. be. Really well, I, oh. I, oh no, I was just, oh, go ahead, keep going. Keep oh, going. well, I was just going to say, um, you know, I think the, the net effect is overall good. Uh-huh. Um, I think, yes, uh, marginalized groups which had been disparate or scattered have made have been able to find each other much more easily, and there's strength in that, uh-huh. in that sense of community. Um, and we've seen, you know, kind of grassroots efforts to, I gotta stop. Wow. You're good. Um, I'm okay. hand talking and it's, it's getting loud. Um, but, uh, yeah, so grassroots efforts to push back against, um, you know, kind of authoritarian or, or, um, really just problematic, uh, paradigms is, is something that social media has really enabled. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I keep thinking of the the paradox of um, intolerance, or the the paradox of tolerance. I'm sorry, is what it's called. Um, and I forget the name of the philosopher that kind of came up with it. But he was a Nazi era, not Nazi, um, Nazi era philosopher, um, Jewish person who himself um, pointed out that that if you are intolerant of intolerance, I'm sorry, of tolerating. I need coffee. Um, if you are tolerant of intolerance, um, and you allow that to continue for you know in an unchecked way, ultimately you end up with nothing but intolerant people um, taking over platforms. So you cannot, you cannot, um, you cannot have Nazis just running all over uh-huh. the place. You really can't have this this fascist dialogue. These. Uh, you talked about the Twitter eggs. A lot of those aren't real. Um, they're bots that are that are effectively being bought and weaponized as an army, um, in some cases, to try and silence discussion by actual groups of marginalized people. Um, so it's a pushback against those grassroots efforts, and it should be stopped. But for whatever reason, Twitter has decided to allow to, to tolerate the intolerance, and we're gonna, we're seeing the effects of that. And I don't know how long Twitter will last. Yes, we'll see. I had you guys for like one more minute. Oh I made Anne do this earlier, so I'm going to make you do it. Can you give okay. us like one or two book recommendations, things that you're loving at the I, moment? Uh, I know, sorry. Um, because like right now I'm reading like nothing but fanfic and... Uh, oh, that's awesome. That <laughs> is yeah, because awesome. I can't tell you what I read. Um, let's see. Um, I did really finally get a chance to read and really enjoy... Um, uh, the Power by Naomi Alderman. Um, you know, there were some some quibbles that I had with it, um, but I basically put off a whole bunch of really good books while I was uh, working on the the New York Times uh, book review, and so now I'm like catching up on the last two or three years good books that I couldn't catch up on. Um, and so I love the hell out of that one. Um, I am finally catching up with Colson Whitehead. I know I feel really bad, um, but I'm reading Zone One and really enjoying it. Although uh-huh. I'm not really very far into it yet. Yeah. Um, and I'm simultaneously reading The Intuitionist. But I am also reading a whole lot of fanfic and and um, self-published books and yeah. other stuff. So awesome. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
is there any way I can make you guys do more of this with us? Because I could listen to you two talk. I would listen sure. to you guys have a daily radio show, I'll be honest. But then sure. I wouldn't get to be on it, so that's no fun. No problem. Okay. Uh-huh. Seriously, Nora and you two are, like, in, again, in my, in my humble opinion, like the defining voice of science fiction. So thank you for joining us today. I couldn't be more honored. And I want, go, I want you guys to come back and do this more. Thank Good. You. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.